0: Good morning, Windsor Christian Fellowship. How are you today? It is an incredible honor to be here today. As I was taking the long journey over from Southeast Asia yesterday, I I had a moment just considering the incredible relationship that our families have with this church through the years. Uh, My dad and Pastor Rick have literally been friends for four decades. Their uh, relationship and friendship predated ministry back to the Produce selling days in downtown Detroit and has lasted all these years and, and now to be able to stand in this moment in the, in the middle of this incredible transition. You know, one of the things I love about God is he doesn't just describe himself as the God of a geographical location. He doesn't just say, I'm the God of Israel. He also describes himself as the God of generations. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's so, so spiritually significant to see a mantle fall from one generation to the next. And just to get to connect with your senior, your new senior pastor, Pastor RJ and Mary has been so, so incredible for me. How many of you know you have a strategist and a, and a man full of wisdom and faith and love? Let's give it up for your new senior pastor. The amazing thing about God is he never takes us backwards he only takes us forward he doesn't move us from from one place of glory to a lesser glory but from one place of glory to a greater glory and what's before us is always greater than what's behind us and I know that we've had an incredible journey here at WCF but how many people know we're just getting started let's thank God one more time for this incredible new chapter My wife, Lindsay, so wishes she could be here meeting you today. She's actually back home with our two boys, Mason and Jude, who are six and three years old, and they're absolutely amazing. You'll see Jude there holding the pink balloon. That is because in May, we are expecting our third child, who is a girl, and we're super excited. We desperately need a girl in our home. Uh, Lindsay was about to put bows on something uh, if we didn't get a girl quickly. And uh, the two boys are nonstop action. It's pretty much like a rest. Uh, match every single day, morning till night, so I think we need to get some things softened up around the house, so we're so, so excited about the girl that'll be here this spring. Obviously, you saw a vision video that describes the last three One Nation, One Day campaigns, and before we go any further, I just want to honor and appreciate the incredible role you've played. Pastor Rick was one of the very first global leaders, spiritual leaders, to, to believe and invest in the vision when it was just an idea, and now together we've Seen two and a half million people encounter the life-changing power and presence of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your faith and your involvement. I know we have missions.me One Nation One Day veterans in the house today. It's an incredible thing to be able to do relationship with you. Well, everybody knows the best-looking people on the face of the earth are here in the nation of Canada. So would you quickly turn to your neighbor and say this after me? Say, if it wasn't for you. I'd be the best looking person in church today. <laughs> and then turn to one more neighbor and say, I prayed all week, I would sit by you. <laughs> Are you hungry for God's word this morning? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it's never even entered the heart of humanity, which you have prepared for us who love you. Lord, we thank you that you didn't simply come to make bad people good, you came to make dead people alive. And I thank you that as your word is proclaimed, you are calling to life the eternal purposes of God over each and every person in the building. Father, we prepare our hearts for you to encounter us today. May we be changed. In Jesus' name and everybody said one of the powerful statements jesus makes throughout his ministry is the harvest is vast but the workers are few will you say that with me this morning the harvest is vast but the workers are few when i read this saying of jesus i'm not so surprised about the first half the harvest is vast Do you know in 1924, there were 2 billion people alive on planet Earth? In 2007, we surpassed 7 billion in global population. So in the span of less than a century, the population of humanity has more than tripled. Missiologists and church uh, theologians and, and Christian researchers have determined that there are still 3 billion people alive on planet Earth that have never heard a clear gospel presentation. And what's more stunning than that is 1 billion of those 3 billion have yet to hear the word Jesus. Isn't it amazing in this new era of technology and communication that we still have 1 billion people that have never heard his name? I think it's incumbent upon us as Christians to ask ourselves the difficult question, to wrestle with the difficult question is what and what is the fate of those three billion that have never heard the gospel and simply those one and 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 surely those one billion that have never even heard his name? We know in the old covenant, in the old testament. The way that God God forgave people's sins and the way people escaped his judgment for their sin was when the priests would take the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of animals, and apply them to an altar. God would look from heaven to earth and see that blood on the altar, and the people would escape his condemnation of their sin. The writer of Hebrews explains to us that there's now a new covenant that replaces the old one. And in this new covenant, it's not the blood of bulls and goats, but it's the blood of the eternal Lamb of God, Jesus, not applied to a physical altar, but applied to the altar of our hearts by faith. And when God looks at our hearts and sees the blood of the Lamb on our hearts, we receive the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. But what about those that have never called on his name, that have never had that blood applied to the altar of their hearts? I think if we were to be honest this morning, we'd have to conclude that since Adam sinned and the disease of sin entered the entire human race, the default destination of every human being is not heaven. We're familiar with John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. But often we forget to continue reading to verse 17 where Jesus says the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world. Then he continues, because the world is already condemned. So when Jesus makes this statement, the harvest is vast, that's not the surprising half of the statement. The surprising half of the statement is actually the second half. But the workers, they are few. Apparently in every generation, there's only been a few. In every generation, there's been this group called the few. That would choose to exchange their life for the first half of Jesus' statement. This vast harvest. And this morning, in the few moments we have together, I'm simply going to ask and answer one question. And that is, who are The few. Who are these few, Jesus refers to, and what do they live for? Number one this morning, the few see the world differently. You're probably familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman, where Jesus breaks cultural norms and protocols and cuts through Samaritan territory. As he does, he approaches a woman who's drawing water from the well and asks her for a drink. This woman is astonished. Jesus is not only a male, but a Jew. And he's speaking to her, a woman, and a non-Jew, a Samaritan. He begins to talk to the woman, and he says, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would give him a drink, because I could give you water that would make you never thirsty again. He continues to tell her details about her life, how he knows she's five times divorced, living with a man who's not her husband, knows that she's hurting and broken. And she is so impacted by this single exchange with Jesus that she rushes back to her hometown and incites a bit of a revival, even in her hometown. After this encounter takes place, the disciples walk up to Jesus and they say, Lord, what are we having for lunch? Jesus responds to their question with these words in John 4, 35. He says, do not say four more months and then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes. The fields are already white. Now, could you imagine asking Jesus what the lunch plans are? And he responds with this statement. What was he doing? He was saying, guys, don't you get it? This Samaritan woman who you already concluded was impossible to change. Who you call filthy, a pagan, was one simple conversation with me away from total life transformation. And so it is with the entire world. I had a friend who grew up on a farm in college and he said, Dominic, I I wish I could describe to you what it was like when it was harvest time. You'd step outside and everywhere you look, you could see the white crops blowing in the wind. And he said, whenever the field was white, it was a sign that it had reached its final point of readiness. All you had to do is go and harvest the crops. It It was ready. He said, but if you didn't harvest it in time, once it became white, it would actually fall to the ground and die and become useless. And Jesus says to the disciples, he says, just like this woman was ready and you didn't think she was, so it is with the whole world. Do not say four more months. The world is ready right now. I'll never forget at 26 years of age, finding myself in the office of the president of Honduras. And I said to the president, Mr. President, I know the nation's in pain. Unemployment's over 40%. They're calling this the world's murder capital because there's the highest homicide rate per capita than in any other nation outside of a war zone. But what if in part Isaiah was speaking to this moment in your history when in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, the prophet asked the question, can a nation be saved in one day? Mr. President, we have a vision called One Nation One Day, and we believe it could begin here in your nation. Now many people told us there's no way that the president would partner. There's no way that the nation could open in this historic and unprecedented way. But I said, Mr. President, number one, would you stand with me on Saturday, July 20, 2013, together from the nation's capital in the Olympic Stadium, we'll speak to the entire country. Number two, would you pass legislation through your Congress calling One Nation One Day an official national holiday? Three, would you open up every public high school in the nation and allow our missions teams to go do a one-hour school-wide assembly with an altar call? Four, open up the ports. Allow us to ship 18 container loads of humanitarian aid and books without. Any taxes or hang-ups at the border and number five give us the 18 largest stadiums in the capital cities of all 18 states at no cost and help us call the nation now I didn't know what the president was gonna say but at the end of the meeting he signed a resolution and six months later the bill passed unanimously through Congress and one nation one day with all five of those provisions became law in the country People said there's no way it's gonna happen, but how many people know the harvest is white, the fields are ready? Some people say there's no way the, the Middle East will change, the no, there's no way the universities in North America will change, there's no way China will change, India, but how many people know the whole world is ready right now? We don't have to wait for another generation, we don't have to wait decades in the future, the earth is ready to encounter the power of Jesus Christ today. And there is not an exception on the earth. Number one, they see the world differently. Number two, they live for a single moment. They're actually living for a moment. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church, and he reminds Christians. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That phrase, the judgment seat, That three-word phrase comes from the single Greek word bema, B-E-M-A. And that word bema, literally translated, means an elevated platform. Paul actually borrows this word from the Roman judicial system because in every Roman court there was a bema or an elevated platform. And when someone would come into the court for their case to be tried, they'd actually step up onto this platform. And then the judge and the members of the court would look at the case and issue their ruling or their determination. Paul actually drags that image into this text and says to the church, I want to remind you there's two judgments. One, what did you do with Jesus? And that judgment will be eternal in heaven or in eternal punishment in hell. But the second judgment will be for believers. And that's the moment when Jesus will look at our lives and and see how we exchanged our days and issue rewards. And I'll tell you, the few are obsessed with the thought of that moment. In fact, everything they do, they filter through the lens of that day when they'll look face to face with the king. Who are the few? Number one, they see the world differently. Number two, they are living for a single moment. Number three, they love until it hurts never forget several years back, Lindsay and I were asked to speak at a youth conference in Pennsylvania. We poured out all weekend to these kids, and at the conclusion of the conference, the youth pastor and his wife got up on the platform, and they said, Lindsay and Dominic have been speaking all weekend. Let's just surround them, begin to pray over them. And I'll never forget this 14-year-old boy began to pray over my wife, Lindsay. And then he lifted his voice and said, Lindsay, God's telling me to tell you he's going to use you with orphans for the rest of your life. Never forget, just a couple of days, uh, a couple of weeks later, we were scheduled to actually lead a small team to India. We're in this team, uh, we're with this team in this small town in the center of the country. And all week long, Lindsay's saying, Dominic, I wanna go see an orphanage. I wanna go see an orphanage. I said, Lindsay, we are in a city that's less than 5% Christian. We're doing outreaches in the public space at night. Sharing the gospel with people who have never heard the gospel, leadership trainings in the morning. We have got to stay focused on why we came. And she said, Dominic, but when that 14 year old boy said those words, it struck me, and I've never been able to shake it. And all these years we've been traveling together, I've never actually seen an orphanage. And I could see she was so serious. So I I asked our partners, I said, Could you bring her to an orphanage? They said, Absolutely. They actually brought her to the home of a pastor. When she arrived at their home, she walked through the front door, out the back, and in the backyard, there was a small cement structure, probably about this side of the platform. When she stepped inside the structure, she encountered 70 children sitting on the floor. The pastor's wife said, Lindsay, these are all full orphans. They have no father, no mother. They sleep on the streets. Her exact phrase was, they sleep under the shade of the palm trees. They come to this place every day, and these kids basically receive what will be their one meal a day. This is a feeding program. Some days, 30 kids show up. Some days, 100. Some days, certain kids never show up ever again. In that moment, the Holy Spirit speaks to Lindsay and says, I want you to build them a house. So she goes rushing back. She comes rushing back to the hotel that night, and she says, Dominic, I met these kids, and you, you won't believe it. I've never heard God's voice more clearly in my entire life. We are going to build them a house. Now, I didn't have the big emotional moment she had just had, so I said, that's amazing. We will definitely put this in the three- to five-year plan. She said, wait a minute. You don't understand. This need is urgent. It's critical. We can't wait three or five years. We have to do something now, this year. I said, Lindsay, it's February. We've already made all of our plans for the year. There's no way we can possibly add an entire construction project. Well, needless to say, with just a handful of dollars set aside in an account, they were doing a groundbreaking ceremony. And that whole year in 2010, we fought, we pushed, we stretched, but somehow, some way, we were able to make it back in December cut the ribbon, open the doors, and give 50 children a brand new home that had never slept on a bed or a pillow in their entire life. It was incredible. <laughs> Lindsay's crying, I'm crying, the kids are crying. It's one of the most memorable days we've ever had. And at the conclusion of the day, our partners there in India pull Society, They say, Dominic Lindsay, it's so beautiful what you've done for the children of India, but do you know we have a crisis in the nation? It's an orphan crisis. There are over 20 million people orphans in this nation by most estimates. You can't stop now. Next year, you need to build nine angel house rescue orphanages. I said, nine? We almost went bankrupt building one. There's no way we could build nine. I said, maybe off of the momentum of this home, we can build four. They said, no, you must build nine. I said, okay, we'll pray about it. So that next year, we uh, a few weeks later, I should say, it's now the new year, Lindsay and I are praying, writing out our goals, and she says, Dominic, we need to fund our own orphanage. I said, you mean like raise the money for one? She said, no, out of our own finances. I said, Lindsay, I know we're just a couple years married and I manage our finances, maybe I've never not been super clear on where things are at, but we can't fund a clean water project at the moment, let alone an entire house. She said, Dominic, I can't believe you. You always preach. If you make yourself available, God will make you capable. I said, well, that's true. So we, we, we began to pray, and we actually covenant to God. We said, Lord, as you bring us the resource, we promise to give it back to you and build you an angel house rescue orphanage. 24 hours later, as God is my witness, Lindsay gets a phone call. It's the executive producer of NBC's popular game show, Minute to Win It. The host, or the producer says, Lindsay, your friend Michelle, I know you probably don't know, but she wrote your name down to be on our season two. If you both were to come on the show, although 25,000 applicants applied, if you were selected and you came on the show, tell us what would you do if you won the $1 million? $1 million. Lindsay emailed her a video of the dedication a couple of weeks earlier. The producer begins to cry, says, how soon could you be in Los Angeles? Lindsay said, as soon as you need me to. A couple of days later, she's on a flight to LA. They flew 30 people out, but picked Lindsay and Michelle to be on the show. The girls competed, went to level eight, won and split a quarter million dollars. And that next year, we built 11 Angel House Rescue Orphanages. What's even more amazing is we had told our partners there in India, I said, I just feel this mandate on our life. I don't know if it'll take our whole lifetime and our children's lifetime, but somehow, someway, we want to build 100 Angel House Rescue Orphanages in this country. Do you know, last summer, we built home 178. There are over 5,000 children off the streets, living in homes straight across the nation. You know, I've concluded what we have to offer God is irrelevant. What we have to offer God today doesn't impress him, and what we don't have doesn't intimidate him. The Bible says the strength of man is comparable to the weakness of God, the, the, the wisdom of man to the foolishness of God. It's never about what we have. It's always been about something deeper. I think one of the most profound scriptures in the entire Bible is Romans chapter nine, verse one through three. Paul says something so amazing. He prefaces it with three separate introductions so we believe he means what he's actually saying. He says, I speak the truth in Christ, number one. I'm not lying, number two. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit, number three. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For if I could, I'd be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. In other words, the pain I feel on the inside simply never goes away. Then he continues to say something I couldn't imagine saying. He says, if it were possible, I would be cut off from Christ. I would give up my salvation if one more in my nation or my generation could be saved. Could you imagine making that statement? But here lies the secret to Paul's ministry. See, even as we gather in church at the 11 o'clock service in November 2018, it's never been about what we have in our hand right now. It's always been about participating in God's passion And carrying his heart. Anguish is the pain of your passion. I often think about Jesus surrounded by the needs of humanity. The Bible says thousands flocked around him, and when he saw the needs around him, something was taking place. He was moved with the compassion, there was a stirring in his his soul, his spirit that was unique. But what about the disciples? Maybe when they saw the press of the crowds and experienced that they were overwhelmed even, maybe even annoyed at some point, but something was happening in in Jesus' heart where he said, I must do something about it. Even as we gather in church on a Sunday morning, you know we're actually surrounded by injustice. 1.5 billion people, a billion people that have never heard the gospel, that's an injustice. Six to seven hundred million people globally that don't have access to clean water. That's an injustice. Tens of thousands of people here in Windsor that have never had an authentic encounter with the love of Jesus. That is an injustice. Whenever we encounter an injustice, there's always one of two possible responses. To acknowledge it and then do everything in our power to ignore it and act like it's not there. To suppress the passion, the compassion that moves up in our heart. And just simply try to coexist with it or to acknowledge it and allow our heart to remain stirred, our soul to be troubled, our spirit provoked until it makes us rise and do something about it. See, I believe that this is an unbelievable moment for the church. I don't believe we're just standing in a new season as the body of Christ, because we have no reference point for what we've just stepped into. See, a season is a glimpse of something you've seen before. It's winter time in Canada. You know what to expect in the winter because you've lived through it before. But we're not just entering into a new season as the church. I believe we've actually just stepped into a new era. And in this new era, God is moving on His church and through His church like never before in human history. And let me be clear, the great commission wasn't given simply so that the church would go or so that the church would grow. If that were the case, Jesus might have just said, go into all the world and add converts, but that wasn't his command. Instead, he said, go into all the world and disciple nations. Now, if I'm going to disciple an individual, I have to purpose in my heart, I'm going to lead the individual. But he didn't just say disciple individuals, he said disciple nations. Implicit in that command is that we would lead nations. Nations. See, the Great Commission wasn't just a mobilization mandate. It was actually a leadership mandate. And I believe right now is the time for the Church of Jesus Christ to be found in the highest offices of government. It's time for the Church of Jesus Christ to be found at the head of the boardroom table. It's time for the Church of Jesus Christ to be found in mass media communications. It's time for the Church of Jesus Christ to be found in entertainment. It's time for the Church to emerge and take its place in the earth. See, we have to remember that the Bible says before Jesus ascended, he descended. And when he descended, he captured the keys of authority that man had lost when he sinned. When when Adam sinned, he relinquished his authority on the earth. But how many people know when Jesus descended, he took the keys back, and then he rose from the dead. And holding the keys in his hand, he reminded us, he said, all authority in heaven, but not just in heaven, on the earth has been given back. And therefore, go and lead nations, disciple nations, bring my kingdom to nations. See, I'm looking at the hope of Windsor. It's right here in the building right now. I'm looking at the hope of Canada. It's in the building. I'm talking to the most important people in the nation. They're in this church today because they're people that are holding the keys. The keys to bring transformation. The keys to bring hope. Christ in us is the hope of the world. And humanity is waiting for a church Gone are the days of churches just meeting in their buildings, hiding and waiting for the rapture. How many people know Jesus isn't saying, wait for me to come down. He's saying, I'm waiting for you to stand up. I'm waiting for you to take your place. He never said hide and wait. He said, go and occupy. This is the hour of the church. How many people believe it this morning? And I want to say right now, He knows who his few were 500 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago. But that's not what's on his mind right now. Right now, the mind of the Father, there's one question, and that is where are my few right now? Where are those who will not inventory their weakness or what they don't have or do have? Where are those who will simply stand between heaven and earth and say, God, I'm not gonna coexist with the injustices of my generation. I'm not gonna act like it's not there. Instead, I stand between heaven and earth and say, I'm willing to do something about it. I'm willing to make myself available. I'm willing to pick up my keys and release your kingdom. I'm willing to lead. I'm willing to stand in the gap. I'm willing to be hope. I'm willing to bring transformation Transformation everywhere. I'm willing to be one of the few. How many people know that's what he's waiting for this morning? In this new era, the church recognizes they're not on defense. We are not scared of an enemy. The Bible says, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stop it. Gates are a defensive mechanism. The enemy's actually hiding behind the gates. But how many people know the gates can't stop the church of Jesus Christ? We are not on the defense. We're actually on the offense. And everywhere he set up gates, we get to go rip them from their foundations and release the kingdom of God, the love of God, the hope that's in Christ. All across the room, if you say, Dominic, I'm I'm ready to be one of the few in my generation. Would you just stand with me this morning? I want us to pray. I'm fully convinced God rarely gets involved in anything that's possible. Think about it. It would not require him I believe he's most interested in the impossible, where it demands his involvement and his his intervention. And in this new era, we don't have to reduce our hopes, plans, preparation to something that is possible. Instead, we could take the limits off and say, Lord, I'm ready to partner with you to release something on the earth that's impossible just hold one second the music I'm ready to release something on the earth that's actually impossible and he will begin to release those things through us there are no surprises or mistakes in the room you didn't come from your parents you actually came through your parents but you originated in the mind and heart of God And he sent you to the earth through your parents without any mistakes. He said, I fearfully and wonderfully made you. Fearfully speaks of a master artist, fearful to make even the slightest mistake. But when he finished with you, he actually said masterpiece and sent you to the earth. And Every detail of your life was on purpose your ethnicity the color of your skin on purpose connected to your purpose your family of origin where you were born when you were born on purpose Your height your talents your gifting every single part of it intentionally Included by God for this moment in history there was no mistake And if we will partner with him, if we'll make ourselves available, he wants to do beyond anything we can imagine. He's saying, will you make yourself available? Will you raise your expectation? Do you feel the spirit of faith rising this morning? I feel it in the room. Would you just lift your hands with me all across the room? If you're ready to partner with God, if you're ready to be one of his few, if you're ready to do what the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, Father, I pray that you would release hope, the joyful expectation of good, biblical hope in the building right now. And with authority, would you pray with me this morning? Say this with me, say, Lord Jesus, we make ourselves available. We wanna be one of the few today, now, in this new era. Release your dreams. Release vision. Release hope. Raise my expectation. I don't wanna settle for possible when you've prepared the impossible. I'm ready to take courageous steps. I'm ready to leverage risk. I'm ready to trust. I'm ready to move. I'm ready to go and lead. Now, Father, all across the room, I pray that you'd begin to speak words. If you'll, he's speaking so clearly in this time in history. You don't have to struggle to hear his voice. There's great clarity right now. Open up the ears of your heart and listen to his voice, specifically showing you what's next. Thank you, Father God, for releasing that clarity now. For confirming your word by the power of your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless your church. Hmm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.